Hey guys, I'm Kristen. And I'm Kara. Welcome to Town and Field Church. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning. And as we prepare to gather and open up the scripture and worship, we pray that wherever you are at would become an encounter with Jesus and that you would be reminded of the abundant life that's found in him. Yeah, we just pray that your home would become an extension of this house, that you would feel welcome here just as you are. Our service will begin in just a moment. Psalm 95, just to position our hearts to enter into worship. Come, let us sing a song to the Lord. Let us give a joy, joyous shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us sing him psalms of praise. For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. He owns the depths of the earth, and even the mightiest mountains are his. The sea belongs to him, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land too. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over, the sheep under his care.
welcome you into this place today. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. We welcome you to come and just move in our midst, to move in our hearts. May we be reminded of who you are, that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth. And that you are here now, that you want to have relationship with us, that you want to move in our hearts, that you want to bring abundant life. May we not forget, God, what a gift that is. May from our hearts just flow thanksgiving and praise. Oh, Lord, there is none like you. May our hearts have a new sense of awe and wonder this morning, God, of who you are. And to remember everything that you have done, that you are great love for us. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.
this morning that God's love never fails it never gives up on you you just silence those lies in the name of Jesus we just declare we declare and believe that this is the truth so let's just sing that over ourselves one more time your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. Come on. Your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love. Oh, we thank you, Jesus.
chance to continue to worship this morning through reading some scripture. And uh, the Lord just brought to mind Psalm 33. And I thought, since we've been declaring through song the truths of who God is, we could continue through the scripture to open and to declare uh, the goodness of God. And I want to acknowledge that this morning in the room, we come from a multitude of realities and we carry a lot of different realities. And so when we sing about God's goodness and when we read about God's goodness, we declare this for our lives and for the lives of those around the world right now, for the lives of believers and men and women and children in the Middle East, in Ukraine and Russia in Afghanistan, in countless places where there isn't the privilege to gather like this and declare who God is. So let's, um, yeah, let's keep worshiping him. For the, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose, Lord, whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the earth, who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul, town and field, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Why don't we take a minute and uh, say hello to each other. It is, some of you look a little rested. Some of you, I think maybe those of you with children under 10, for whom time change means nothing, look tired. Say good morning and uh, give some warm handshakes today. All right. Good morning again. It is good to be together. My name's Katie, and this morning I just have the privilege of letting you know a few things 
happening around Town and Field Church here. But if you are new here, if this is your first Sunday here, or you've been coming for a couple weeks and you haven't had a chance to meet someone or get our guest gift, I want to invite you to come meet me after the service. I'm going to be at the welcome table, which is just on the right before you head out the doors. And I would just love to answer any questions you have about Town and Field or uh, help you find your way around here. I would love to connect with you if this is your first Sunday here. I'm so excited because we are finally in the week of a much anticipated, much spoken of uh, event. This Thursday is our parent and caregiver equipping night. And our team has been working really hard on this night. You've been hearing about it for a while. Uh, our deep desire as a church is to raise kids and teens who are fully formed in the way of Jesus and who know how to encounter the world and engage with those who are being restored by Jesus. And part of that is equipping them and helping them learn how to use technology and the internet in a really safe way. And so our team has contracted the White Hatter Group. I keep almost calling them the Mad Hatter Group. <laughs> uh, they're going to come and bring all of the best expert advice on the questions that parents and caregivers face, questions about uh, digital literacy, about app privacy and safety and online predators and exploitation and sleep problems and the list goes on and on and we want to invite you if you are a parent if you're an aunt or an uncle if you're a grandparent this is going to be a great night it's also a great night to invite friends I was so encouraged last week I was part of a discussion with some moms from the school a bunch of whom don't come to town and field church and we were talking about something needs to happen this week and should it happen Thursday night and no a bunch of these moms not from our church coming to this evening. Uh, our church, our team, our next gen team is passionate about making this available to the community. So please invite those in your world. Uh, it's a great time to invite people in to learn more about this topic, but also to get to come and rub shoulders with Town and Field Church because you guys rock. So uh, this Thursday night, 7 p.m. here at the church, just it's free, but we would love to know who's all coming. So make sure you sign up online or if uh, you're having difficulty with that, just come see me at the welcome table after the service. My other announcement this morning is that in a couple weeks, we are having our fall town hall meeting. Uh, every six months, we have kind of more of a formal business meeting where we, one is our AGM, and then our fall business meeting is just an opportunity to kind of take a step and look behind the curtain at what goes on, how uh, the ministry plans and finances and everything, how that makes the church run. And that might sound like not exciting to you, but it's a really sweet evening, uh, I promise, of getting to hear from the staff, from the elders about what's going on at Town and Field. There's going to be ministry updates, financial updates. There's going to be an update from our search committee on our search process for lead pastors. So uh, make sure and come to that. There also is, uh, we're voting uh, on one elder nomination. So if you're a member, you can come and vote on one elder nomination. Bob Fairley has had his name put forward for eldership, so that's really exciting. Uh, but you can come even if you're not a member. This night is also gonna be an evening where we talk about, with the elders, about what it means to be a church and how we as a church, how we make decisions, how we plan for the future, how we seek God's will together, the congregation, the elders, the staff, everybody's role within that. And this is an open dialogue that we're gonna have. There's lots of opportunity for questions and answers from the elders and some clarity around that. And so I really encourage you, it's a great night for uh, the life of our community, Monday, November 20th at 7 p.m. here at the church. Uh, I'm delighted to invite up Pastor Rich to open the word for us this morning. Uh, I'm really excited to hear, we're really excited to have Rich open the scriptures for us and um, we've been praying for you this week, Rich. Thanks so much. Thanks, Katie. 
This morning we're going to be looking at uh, the book of First John and starting right at the beginning of it. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, you can do that. Back on uh, September 11th, Pastor Catlin unpacked some of the practical implications of our vision statement, which you might have noticed there's a fresh sign out in the entryway that says, to see people experience abundant life in the way of Jesus. And his sermon was based on the text of John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, or some, some translation says, have it more abundantly. Abundant life. We've mentioned it a few times this morning already in our service. In that sermon, Pastor Catlin defined abundant life as walking in the way of Jesus, a concept that's rooted in the restored relationship that we have with God in Jesus Christ. And then throughout the fall, we've been looking at the idea of abundant life as it's expressed in what it means to walk with Jesus in purpose, in meaning, in identity, in, and on assignment with him. But maybe as we've been doing all of this, and, or maybe if we could say in our less inspired moments, there may be times when that just all seems a bit distant in our day-to-day -day lives, or maybe even theoretical. The daily grind has a way of taking the edge off of all this talk of purpose and meaning. And maybe abundant isn't exactly a word that you use to describe your life. Now, there are no doubt a number of things that can cause that. Some of them are spiritual, and we're going to talk about some of those this morning. Some of them are psychological. There's even some physical, maybe even the weather. The last little bit has gotten you down a bit. While it's important not to discount all of those things, and we should take care of ourselves physically, get out, get some exercise, all of those types of things, I, I often think we do tend to discount the spiritual. As Jesus said in that verse about abundant life, there's an enemy of our souls that wants to steal that life. The thief wants to make us feel and act like we are distant from God instead of a people who have been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Now, there's many tactics that have been proven to be fairly effective in doing just that, and we can see them illustrated throughout Scripture. Right at the beginning of the church, when we read about it, the book of Acts, that when the group of, the, of those that had put their faith and hope in Jesus were still relatively small, persecution broke out. The thief was trying to steal, kill, and destroy the work of Jesus in the hearts of men by instilling fear. And he still uses that tactic in our lives today. But at that time, it backfired because through persecution, the church was spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. And these congregations of churches started to spring up all around. And then we read throughout the rest of Scripture the letters to those various churches. But in each one of those, again, we can see some of these tactics that the enemy's trying to use to steal the abundant life. Um, to the book of Galatians, Paul has to address legalism, the works-based religion that it's so easy for us to fall into in terms of how we practice our spirituality, spiritual pride in our relationship with God, in a sense, that life being stolen away by religion itself. I love the imagery that Paul uses in chapter 5 when he says this, 
you were running a good race? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Can you picture that? These guys running around a track and then somebody cuts across. Maybe you've seen videos like that on YouTube and everybody goes flying in different directions. That's what he's talking about. Like the runner who gets cut in. These people were beginning to focus on the rules of Christianity. Feast days, regulations, ceremony, traditions, instead of the simple living relationship with God that Jesus had come to make possible through his death and resurrection. In the letter to the Corinthians, we read about another tactic. He starts talking about a church being divided over which church leader they're going to follow. Then he has to talk about sexual immorality and pride about what they're doing with their gifts in the church. To the Ephesians, he addresses a church split between the Jews and the Greeks. He also talks about family relationships and how that gets people down and steals the joy of their life in Christ. He, ta he names false teachers and other things that are coming to steal away the truth, the simple truth about what it meant for Jesus to come and to die for our sins and what his resurrection meant. And all of those things are happening, stealing away the abundant life that Jesus came to, to bring. Today I want us to look at John's letter to the believers. Probably one of the last books that's written in the Bible. John was one of those disciples who knew in the flesh what it was like to have a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He was the one who's described in the Last Supper as leaning on Jesus as they're reclining at the table together. Now, by the time this letter is written, John has seen the church grow. He's seen a whole generation of believers come into relationship with God and faith in Christ. But he sees a recurring tactic that's happening, that the thief is using again to steal, kill, and destroy the relationship with God. So as we look at this passage today, I think you're going to see just how relevant it is to our world today and what's even happening in the thinking and minds of people in our society all around us and maybe even in our own hearts this morning. Before we jump into the passage, I'm going to say that I'm going to be borrowing heavily from Timothy Keller's exposition on this passage. I found it not only to be brilliant but deeply clarifying. Let's begin, though, by reading uh, 1 John chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched... This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. I'm just going to stop there, and then we're going to keep working through this passage. He starts out simply by saying, hey, some of us who had the glorious privilege of walking and talking and living with Jesus, our eyes saw him, we touched him, we saw the life. Life embodied in an individual. 
Now, that's a clear reference to the, the different things that Jesus claimed when he was here. John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's also a reference to the passage we've already talked about, John 10, 10. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. These words are very similar to how John starts his gospel when he gives the whole account of Jesus' life. John chapter 1 in the gospel there, he says, in him was life. And the life was the light of all mankind. So John is saying Jesus as the very embodiment of this abundant life that he came to bring us to replace death and experience a new existence with him. That's who Jesus was. And that experience of life is expressed today also as fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says, we want to tell you about this so that you can fully join into that life, that fellowship with God, that living together with him in an empowered way that we're talking about so that we can be joyful together. So right out of the gate, as he's giving this letter to the believers, he's saying life is found in restored relationship with God. The very thing we've been talking about throughout the whole fall. Fellowship with God and all the other people who are walking in the eternal life found in Jesus. But then he shifts, and he starts to talk about truth. You can use the word theology. Basically, he, what he experienced in Jesus about the very nature of the eternal God, his attributes, the implications of those things. This is what he says in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now this is another way of saying God is absolutely perfect, pure, holy, separated from sin. There is no sin in God at all. There is no wrongness. And then he declares the implications of that in terms of our relationship with God. Verse 6, if we claim to have this fellowship that we've been talking about, to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Part of understanding holiness is this concept of separation from sin, or being set apart from sin. So he's saying, since God has revealed himself as absolutely holy, if we claim that we're walking with him and have that close relationship with God, and yet we continue just to live in sin, well, we're lying. Because God isn't like that. He doesn't coexist with sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that theology can make me a bit uncomfortable because, well, I, I know I'm not perfect. I have a bent towards some things that I know I shouldn't do or think. And at the end of the day, sometimes when I look at the, in the rearview mirror at what I've done, I'm, I'm disappointed with myself. I realize I've done some darkness walking, we could call it. I've allowed the shadow side of my personality to dictate my actions and reactions. It's led maybe to anger, to pride. Maybe I've written an email or said something to people that I just realize is sinning against God, sinning against other people. I think by nature, we know and kind of understand this, this subject that he's talking about. 
when we do something we know is not God's will for us as individuals, we can and do often immediately feel distant from God. In fact, I think there are many of us who, because simply we know how imperfect we are, we may live in an almost constant state of feeling like God is a bit disappointed with us. And when we live in that constant state, we're not living in joy, and we're not experiencing what we might call abundant life. So in reality, then, our Christian experience is maybe full of private shame. Either that or our Christian lives can become, and I've seen this happen with so many people, very performance-based. We start to measure ourselves by the things that we know we can do. And the abundant life gets stolen and replaced by a life of trying to be better. But sadly, over time, that kind of lifestyle also just becomes harsh, lacks joy, and though a person might feel good about themselves and their religious performance, it somewhere in the mix, it gets mixed up with spiritual pride, and deep down there's, again, no abundant life in that. But many others of us, we just try to ignore the fact that we don't measure up. We push it to the back of our minds, we try to find enjoyment in other ways in life. We drown out the truth of, the, of that by our work, by our family, by the busyness. But over time, moments which remind us of God's standards, listening to his word being taught or participating in some other form of fellowship where we again be held, get held accountable, accountable to the word or through worship, it all becomes less appealing because it's just trying harder and harder to make it happen. So what's the answer? John goes on, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, at first reading, that might sound like what I was just describing. We might think this verse is saying, well, if we would just try and live holy lives like God is holy, then we'll have a relationship with God and with others. And, you know, whenever we don't measure up, the blood of Jesus Christ makes up for that lack. So, hey, we're all good. And that reading of this scripture can lead us again to that constant trying to make it happen harder. Christian moralism with a deep dose of cheap grace attached to it. That is not what I understand this verse to be saying. But sadly, that's often how we live it. Now, how do I know that's not what it means? Because of what he describes in the next verses. Look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We live in a world today that is doing all it can to discount all of the standards that have been held by Christianity over the years, by the things that God has told us are not his design for us as his people. A few weeks ago, I was engaged in an interaction with a person who has walked away from the faith. And the words that they used to describe the process of stepping away from the faith communicated that when they finally did it, when they walked away from it all, it was a huge relief. When they stopped believing in sin as God defines it, 
they described it as getting their life back from all the unreasonable expectations they felt had been imposed upon them by religion. They finally felt free. They felt free from guilt, free to choose without having to conform to someone else's moral code. They got their life back from religion. That's how they described it. They felt that their life had been stolen from them up to that point. In these days of deconstruction of faith, that has become a common story. That's how people are describing what it's like to step away from God. People are willing to accept the teachings of Jesus that we should be kind, that we should seek justice for the oppressed, and so on. But they have a problem with the parts of the Bible that call out sin, especially when it limits things like the sexual expression of love. They want to believe that because God is creator and that because, hey, we're all God's children, he, like a doting goodwill daddy, is just going to overlook our sin in the end. People are willing to accept the moral code of relational ethics that Jesus taught, but they don't want to accept the truth that God is light, in him is there, there's no darkness at all. He's pure and holy, that he actually condemns sin. And over and over again throughout the Bible, he demonstrates judgment. In some ways, the basic question that many people are wrestling with today is this. Is the God of judgment that is seen, for example, in the Old Testament, really the same God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, I think we'd all have to admit that reading the Old Testament gets pretty tough going. If you take your Bible and you hold up the section that has just the prophets in it, so this section of the Bible between, let's say, Isaiah and Malachi, that's like a quarter of the Bible, okay? There's nothing in here except judgment. And you go, why would God do that? Why would God spend so much time talking about judgment in his revelation of himself to us? And then there's the Old Testament law, all of those rules and regulations. Now, I can't grab a section because it's kind of mixed, all mixed in with the story, but there's all kinds of things in there that just seem like crazy standards that God put in there. Because of all of that, several fairly well-known preachers have recently gone public saying that we should unhitch our Christian faith from the Old Testament, that the gospel in which we live is only based in grace and mercy, faith and forgiveness. But the problem with that approach is that we actually lose the power of the message of the gospel. Let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. There's an interesting passage of scripture right after the resurrection of Jesus found in the gospel of Luke chapter 24. And this is what it describes. It's three days after Jesus was crucified and two men are walking away from Jerusalem toward Emmaus. And Jesus, and they didn't recognize him, joins them. And they are saying, Jesus sure turned out to be a huge disappointment. We thought he was going to be the promised Messiah, the savior of the world, the king. But instead he was crucified like a common criminal. 
But listen to Jesus' reply. Luke chapter 24, verse 24. He, Jesus, says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses, now that would be the Old Testament, first five books, and all the prophets, that's that section I just held up a little bit ago, Isaiah through Malachi, he explained to them what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. I would have loved to have been walking along with those guys and overheard that little discourse between them and Jesus. Jesus would have walked them through the story of creation and the fall, similar to what we've been doing in the last number of weeks. When God, when, when there was sin, God had to kill some animals to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve, demonstrating that death and judgment had come into the world as a result of sin. He would have for sure mentioned Abraham, taking his son Isaac up onto the mountain and being willing to sacrifice his son, a foreshadowing of God giving up his son to sacrifice for sin. And then Abraham's prophetic words, God himself will provide a sacrifice. Then Jesus would have related that whole sacrificial system and all of its imageries as picturing a holy God who could not be approached except through the impossible demands of purification and regulation, all of which, again, could only be met through the blood sacrifice of sin. He would have related the story of God delivering his people out of Egypt, bringing down judgment on the Egyptians, but passing over the households of those who protected themselves by a blood sacrifice of a lamb. And then he would have pointed out that Jesus was the Lamb of God crucified on the Passover, the very day when the Jews celebrated that feast in Jerusalem, commemorating that sacrifice for sin. Jesus was the Passover Lamb, the sacrifice to save his people from God's judgment. He would have talked about the prophets, all those books I just held up. He would have explained how they portray God like a husband reaching out in love to his people over and over again. But then, as it's described in those books, like a wife who prostituted herself to other men, his people forsook the God who loved them. And in anguish, he calls to them again and again over many generations. And finally, he has to be true to his word and judge them with the death penalty because they refused to acknowledge their sin. He would have had to point out that down through all of that history, that for those who put their faith and confess their sin, that God did provide forgiveness through the shedding of blood, and that Jesus was now the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The words of John the Baptist when he, first, when he saw Jesus coming to him. You see, without the Old Testament, we don't have a clear picture of who God is his holiness, his separation from sin, the nature of judgment, all of those stories, the laws, the prophets, they make it clear that even when given miraculous advantage, which is what the Israelites had, God's people can't be good enough. Sin is a problem that can only be dealt with the death penalty. And Jesus paid the death penalty for us. 
if we're offended and creeped out by the judgment of God in the Old Testament, we're not going to be able to understand the broad scope of human history and what the Bible says. Or as John puts it in this passage this morning, if we claim to be without sin, if we claim that sin isn't a thing, if we're going to downplay the seriousness of sin or God's definition of what is sinful, if we reject God's revelation of himself in sin and judgment as God reveals it, we won't see the problem and we won't embrace God's solution. Timothy Keller puts it this way, Historic Christians believe that our sin has made us worthy of condemnation and hell. From those living respectable lives to those leading criminal lives, all of us fall infinitely and therefore equally short of loving and serving God in ways that is due him. The basic human disposition is that we are the God of our own lives. We want to be God instead of be under God. And if you don't get this, you will be deceived and make God out to be a liar. Now, you might say, well, that wasn't very encouraging. All this talk about judgment isn't really helping me at all. I feel bad enough about myself already. Embracing these truths doesn't seem like abundant life. Who wants to be in a relationship with an angry God? But John is about to get to the good part. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's start walking through this verse by talking about our understanding of forgiveness. In order to understand the meaning of forgiveness, we need to read this verse along with the, the context, especially it's unfortunate there's a chapter break because really the thoughts go right on through. At the beginning of the next chapter, this is what John says. First John 2 verse 1, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, if you're like me, you've had times in your Christian experience where you feel like you are constantly disappointing God and you feel distant from him during those times. And when you read this passage about God's forgiveness and Jesus being our advocate before, before the Father, there may be a picture that comes up in your mind that's something like this. Jesus is up there pleading before the throne of God. He sees me sinning yet again and comments this. This is God talking to Jesus. I can't believe he did it again. And Jesus replies, yeah, I know, but just give him another chance. Please, for my sake, Father, would you please? And then the father shakes his head with disappointment and says, okay, for your sake, just one more time, with a kind of a look of disapproval, but I'm going to keep a close eye on him. That may be how we feel about our relationship with God when we know that we've done something that displeases him. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't say that, but somehow, because we know that God is separate from sin, we feel separated from God when we acknowledge our sin. And as a result, we play those kind of pictures over in our mind. I feel like I'm pro on probation with God, half full of guilt, fighting shame and fear. And that is bondage. These people that are talking about deconstruction these days, they're right. 
If that's the way we live the Christian life, it is not the abundant life that God gave to, came, came to bring us. That is not what the Bible teaches God is like. But that's the way many people relate to God on a practical level. When we listen to many, if not most, of the deconstruction testimonies, that's often how they describe it. Oppressive, shame-based religion. You see, if we think of God's forgiveness involves pleading for mercy, we picture God as a God who's constantly disappointed. It's no wonder we have no joy in our relationship with him. There is no abundant life in that kind of relationship. That understanding of forgiveness also affects the way that we receive or give forgiveness with other people. If someone comes up to us and asks us to forgive them for something they've done to us, if we choose to forgive them, how do we normally respond? We say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. But you see, what that communicates is an understanding of forgiveness that says, I guess I'm willing to overlook it this time. I'm annoyed, I'm angry, I choose to tolerate it, but I think it's the right thing to do. And that's often the way that we give forgiveness to other people. When the Bible says that God forgives us, that is not the kind of forgiveness he gives. This verse says, he is faithful and just to forgive. He's first of all faithful to himself. He's not a wishy-washy God that's swayed by the emotional pleas of an advocate. He's absolutely faithful to be who he has always been, holy and separate from sin, to all of his standards all of the time. And he's just. We cannot, he cannot set aside justice like it doesn't matter. That's not the kind of forgiveness we're talking about. And, though Christ, and through Christ, that's not what he's doing at all. Let's go back in our minds again to that scene that I was describing a little while ago of Christ standing before the Father advocating on our behalf. I'm gonna, again, I'm going to quote Timothy Keller here. Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense lawyer. And he's got a winning case. He's got a solid legal defense. He is saying to the Father, Father, your law demands the death penalty for the sins of my client, and I am here to declare before you today that that death sentence has been carried out. The punishment for this sin has been taken. Therefore, I would be, it would be unjust for you to demand a second payment for these sins because I already paid for them. Therefore, my father, it would be unjust for you not to forgive. Not to forgive Rich Peachy when he does it again. You see, Jesus is not up there begging for mercy. He's demanding justice. There is nothing more valuable than justice, the justice of God, that in the Old Testament might have left us fearing for our lives from a God who revealed himself as a consuming fire on judgment on sin again and again is now on our side in Jesus Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
if that's, it's not that God is not merciful. It's that he sent his son in mercy to die for us in our place. God never overlooks sin. He obliterates it with his justice. Then and only then can he freely offer us forgiveness, replacing our unrighteousness with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's justice. That's great news. That's where the power of the abundant life comes from. Then and only then can an absolutely holy God, separate from sin, enter into an open, loving relationship with people like me who disappoint God. Many people today are trying to deal with the guilt and shame through denial. They are trying to say that God, that the way that the Bible defines sin is old-fashioned, outmoded, no longer applies. Probably the most common expression of this is when people basically say, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. If there is a God and he's fair, he'll see that I'm usually kind. I don't take advantage of other people. If there is a heaven, I'm probably going there. I've tried my best to do pretty good. I'm not perfect, but I certainly have the right to go in. That's the way many people think about God. How different that is from what I just described about the justice of God. The problem with that hope-so kind of relationship with God is that it's not based in truth. We make God out to be a liar when we say those things. When we refuse to accept that God has said, for all have sinned and fall, up short, fall short of the glory of God, or Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. If we refuse to accept these truths, we make God out to be a liar. And that's what John is calling out in this passage. That's the lie that steal, kills, and destroys the forgiveness of God. And if the thief can't make us to, to believe that lie, then he whispers the opposite extreme. He tries to make us believe that, hey, we're a lost cause. And we just get filled with such an overwhelming sense of our sin that we're crushed under it. And we can hardly look up to God. We don't want to be in his presence. We just want to step away from God, religion, everything. If either of those streams has described your thinking, I want to tell you that the thief has been coming and planting those thoughts in your mind to steal, kill, and destroy the abundant life that Jesus came to bring you. But the simple truth of the gospel is this. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By living in that simple truth, the, we, we enter into this abundant life that Jesus came to give us. That understanding of forgiveness is so powerful. Also in our relationships with other people. Listen to this. When you understand that forgiveness is rooted in God's justice and faithfulness, when another person wrongs you, even very deeply, in your heart, you can say to that person, 
I surrender you and all that you did to the God of justice. He may forgive you in his grace or he may call you into a justice if you don't acknowledge and repent of your sins, but I'm not going to hold it over you anymore. I give this entire situation over to the just judge. And he's going to deal with it now. And on that basis, I can offer you forgiveness, not because what you did was okay, but because the God in his justice is going to do what is just. It's in God's hands. And me, I'm walking away free from the hurt and shame because it's not up to me anymore to hold you accountable for what you've done. Understanding God's forgiveness in the light of his justice and forgiveness opens the door to that kind of forgiveness in a way that we may have never thought was possible. And most importantly, it restores our own relationship with God. Or as John puts it here in this text, truly we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. No more days of feeling like God is scowling down at us as we continue to humbly admit we need forgiveness, we walk in the light, the light of his truth, the light of his love. Here's the invitation this morning. If what I've been describing today about forgiveness and walking with God is new to you, maybe you've been a Christian for a number of years, but the thief has managed to steal, kill, and destroy your joy. Instead of having freedom, you've been living a miserable life of just trying harder, trying to do your best, but constantly feeling guilt and shame, I want you simply to say yes to Jesus in a new way. You're saying yes to him being your advocate. Like a lawyer who's got a just case before the throne of God, you are saying yes to accepting the fact that his st standards are higher than you could ever meet. You're saying yes that God is just and condemning you to death for your sin, but you're also saying yes to being absolutely declared righteous and totally and completely forgiven because Jesus died in your place. As we wrap up the sermon this morning, we're going to do it in a very fitting way. We're going to take communion together. I'll call the worship team up here as well. Communion is just a beautiful picture of what we've been talking about. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he sat with his disciples at a meal and he said this, this cup is my blood. Think about that for a minute. All of those stories in the Old Testament about blood sacrifices. Jesus is saying, it's about me. This cup is my blood. This cup is the God of justice pouring out his wrath on me, draining my life from my body, taking my life, paying the penalty for sin. So when you drink this cup, you're saying, Jesus died for me. Jesus died so I didn't have to. Now God is just in forgiving me. And then he took the bread and he broke it in front of his disciples a pretty graphic thing, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat this bread, you are saying, Jesus died, J Jesus' body was wounded, broken for me, 
His death demanded justice, and it was met in Jesus Christ. And Jesus asked his followers to regularly drink a cup and break bread together or eat bread together so that they would remember him, remember the judgment of God on sin, that he took that judgment on himself. Maybe all of this is brand new to you this morning. Maybe you've never really said yes to God, but today you've understood for the first time what Christians mean when we talk about Jesus being our Savior, to be the one who saved us from the death that we deserved. As we sing the last couple of songs, I want to encourage you to say yes to God. Yes to accepting the verdict that you deserve to die for your sins, but also saying yes to forgiveness. The one who died so you didn't have to. Forgive it or confess your sin and accept his faithful and just forgiveness. And then enter into that relationship that we've been talking about all fall. That relationship of purpose, meaning, identity. One of the greatest declarations of Scripture is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the freedom of our relationship with God. That's abundant life. That is life-giving. The worship team is going to start playing some music. When you're ready, get up. Get a portion of the, of the uh, drink and the bread. Return to your seat and just spend a moment thanking Jesus for being the one who stepped into your place of death in order that you could have abundant life.
Sing it out. Death could not hold you. The veil torn before you. You silenced the most of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no
we serve a powerful God. And we have testified to that this morning through song, through scripture. Rich, thank you for reminding us the powerful name of Jesus in the scripture, all over the scripture. I want to send us off with this um, verse that Rich ended his message with and the freedom that we walk in because of it. There is no, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just a few verses later, Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's go in that freedom, that goodness of our King this morning. Have a great morning. We'll see you next week. Thank you.